we're creating wealth in the most expansive time in history for people that more often than not, not to say this is the case all the time, but that more often than not, we're already good. While we sit here and there's populations like the good zone in DC, in Southwest Washington, DC, where the average income is $14,000 a year. Wow. And we think that that's perfectly acceptable. Like you and I also agree on the point that poverty is a social construct that doesn't need to exist. Totally unnecessary. Financial technologies that have been created recently, like cryptocurrencies, um, and the utilization of Web3 is the latest sort of iteration of how we can do it. It obviously allows us to do it at a much quicker and more efficient pace. But we could have eradicated poverty a long time ago. And this has been a relatively recent shift, though we've been we've been able to do it for years. But there was a period when there was genuine scarcity and not enough to go around. But we passed that point. We don't live in that time now. We don't live in that time now. The second that they started building them rockets that look like dildos and shooting them up to the moon, the time had come and gone where you could tell me that people need to be living on the street. Like, Agreed. It's completely unacceptable. Like, completely unacceptable. It was actually pre-spaceship even. Like, we, we could have done this stuff. The thing that really lit a fire under me in my brain was during the financial crisis, mm -hmm. 2008, 2009, markets crashing, et cetera, et cetera. They print $4 trillion to shore up Wall Street, mm -hmm. more or less. And I don't remember voting for it. No one remembers voting for it. I don't remember anyone being like, where are we going to get the money, et cetera, et cetera. But I got to tell you, Darius, I, I saw that shit and was like, we just did what? We just printed $4 trillion to essentially make the banks whole. Uh, and I took from that this incredible revelation that if we'd wanted to, we could have produced $4 trillion worth of wealth, goods, services for the American people at any point up to then, you know, if push came to shove. This week, on Forward, Darius Baxter, the co-founder and CEO of Good Projects, an anti-poverty organization. He also won the 2021 Muhammad Ali Humanitarian of the Year Award. Darius Baxter, coming up on Forward. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Darius Baxter, the co-founder and CEO of Good Projects, the winner of the 2021 Muhammad Ali Humanitarian Award and Anti-Poverty Entrepreneur. Welcome to the podcast, Darius. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to be here, Andrew. So pumped. Uh, and you and I are bonding over the fact that we, we both see that so many people are struggling with this unnecessary scarcity and deprivation and unfortunately it's not just material it actually kind of uh crushes your spirit sometimes yeah no 100 percent. think we would agree on the fact that there's too many people that are out here today that are operating from a place of what i like to call a deficit mindset uh, it's very easy to wake up in the morning and make the choice that you're going to look out into the world and be pessimistic um, you're going to look out into the world and say that you don't want to lead with love or that people aren't leading with love when they're interacting with you. But when you operate through the world in that way, uh, it oftentimes limits your ability to see like all the amazing things that are possible. Um, I like the communities that I work in and what we try to impress upon the families that we serve at the projects is this thing called a growth mindset, which is to enter out into the world with this keen understanding that Everyone is conspiring for your success. <laughs> well, that's not the way a lot of people feel. Well, I mean, you know, it, it is true that in a certain type of community, people are just pulling for you all the time. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's not the way that most people operate, but that has a lot to do with our conditioning. Um, America has for so long conditioned us to compete against one another or to you know, look at one another or to other or to create tribes and say that. They're this way, so you know I can't wow. be with them or support them, and or they're that way, so I can't, you know, follow their lead. But I think we all have an opportunity and a choice to. I don't know where I'm going with this. This is what what hell of a lead. <laughs> uh, um, 
Okay, but let's let's keep going. Let's keep going. Yeah, man, don't worry. We we've got it. Yeah. Um, so you have a lot of uh, very direct personal experience with poverty, having grown up in the projects of DC. Sure. Now you're this award-winning social entrepreneur. How the heck Overrated. do you get through? Yeah, I, you know, I get it, man. I, I also was once like you, <laughs> uh, but. Uh, in the sense of, you know, I was, I was a social entrepreneur and like I got an award or two and then sometimes people would hype it up. And then if you're in your shoes, you're like, oh, you know, it's like it's just um, just trying to do some work. Uh, but how did you go from the projects to co-founding and being the CEO of this thriving social enterprise? Well, I think one thing and so often when people tell my story, you know, it starts in the projects. But I was blessed that I had a single mother that worked really hard. Um, to make sure that we always had a roof over our head outside of public housing. Um, and I'm never going to take that away from her and all the work that she did. Uh, we definitely went without for days, but uh, that woman removed hell and high water to make sure that her boys were in a position where they could be successful. My story started in a place that is not unique, to be honest. Um, single mom growing up in 90s DC in the midst of a, a, crack, uh, epi a crack era that ravaged the black community, um, like so many communities, not just in DC, but around the country. Yet, you know, for me, it was always being involved in different programs and uh, definitely sports as a main driver for my success, keeping me focused and giving me the discipline that I needed. Uh, you were a competitive football player from early on, right? I was. I still feel the pain now, man. <laughs> how, how early did they start you? Or did you start yourself? Started for the, definitely didn't start myself. Started flag at four. And then uh, contact football got started at six. Wow, six. Uh, and what, what position did you start out in? Uh, I was the, if you believe this, Andrew, I was the center when I was a little kid. I was a star. I was a stud center, man. I was a stud center. Well, uh, people who are just listening to this, Jerry's a big guy, but he's not that big. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I didn't play center. I, I, could, I didn't play center all the way through, and I definitely started off. The kids started catching up to me with socks, and you know. So you went from center to what position? Uh, I went to college as a wide receiver. So wow. So mm -hmm. if, if you got a D one scholarship, you must have been a very high level athlete throughout your high school years. Is that right? I was a hard worker. Always a hard worker. Um, for me, nothing ever came easy. Uh, sport, it made me what I am today in a lot of aspects. Everything that I got, whether it was a scholarship, whether it was getting time on the field, whether it was gaining muscles. I was a skinny kid. You know, I really had to work I for I relate to that too, man. <laughs> yeah. You hit the gym a little bit. Uh, so I, I'd skipped a grade. Um, it seems like you were young when you graduated from high school too. Is that right? Oh, uh, yeah, I was. I was uh, 17 when I graduated. Dude, I have no idea how you'd be... Uh, an uh, exceptional athlete and also be a year younger than people because a lot mm -hmm. of the time you're a year older. I was a year younger and was small and scrawny and always felt like I was the Asian runt. Uh, and so I had this massive chip on my shoulder about trying to prove myself as a boy or a man, which in that case led me to get in a lot of fights that I generally lost. <laughs> like I, uh -huh. I, I ended up hitting the gym when I was in my late teens, but before that, I wrestled for a year and was terrible. I went yeah. out for the basketball team and got cut. Uh, I did make the tennis team. And you developed my, some grit along the way, I hope so. There, I guess, I mean, you know, sticking my nose in. I mean, we were joking when, when we walked in. You were like, hey, did you have any political ties before you ran for president? So, and I was like, no. So maybe I'm just used <laughs> to going out for things that I have no business going out for. <laughs> Man, we're going to change it. Hopefully we're going to end that trend to losing, though. We're going to end that trend. You got some wins in store. Oh, well, thank you for saying so, man. I mean, I certainly took an L this past week, and we were joking about that with me, man. where, you know, I, I uh, uh, made a comment that uh, was wrong and uh, pissed a lot of people off, and I've just been uh, saying, yeah, I get it, I get it all, all week. Yeah, that's what my, my grandmother taught me, man. Don't stick your nose to something you ain't trying to smell. You took on black Twitter. That was a bad decision, my friend. <laughs> that was a bad decision. Don't stick your nose in there. Yeah, so ho hopefully there could be peace uh, in the Twitterverse uh, because, you know, I, I, I certainly understand the uh, uh, wrongheadedness uh, of my comment. I hope people know where my heart is. Well, it's like, I think it's less about your comment, but you use the most basic 
one everybody knows to stay away from. He has a black friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everybody it's, knows that. Andrew, dumb. what's going on? We got to get some more black people on your team. You talking about Joe Rogan. Come on, man. Somebody should have told you that. Oh, you know, that they, they, they were definitely telling me all about it, uh, you know, like immediately thereafter. And I, I had a bunch of uh, conversations that were really emotionally charged yeah. uh, with, with some people. I think you and I have in common, even like some of the people that I was talking to. And it was a learning experience, that's for sure. For sure. Um, but I, I certainly appreciate the understanding that some people have extended to me. No, 100 percent, man. And. And the, even the, the conversations that we've been able to have, uh, understand how genuine you are, and I think that's important. And at the end of the day, oh, we all you, make mistakes. We all make mistakes. And I think the time that we live in now, it becomes so easy to point the finger at somebody and say, oh, look what they did wrong, as if we all don't wake up every single day and do things, even not intentionally, but do things that offend people or hurt people. You know, one of the stories that, particularly in this moment in time, that I think we all have, really should take some time to learn from is the story of the prodigal son. You know, in the Bible, it tells the story about a gentleman that, you know, makes this decision that they want to take their birthright and head out into the wilderness and be a man, you know? And we've all had periods in our lives when we head out there and what the gentleman finds out very quickly is the world is a very dark place. It ends up, you know, at the bottom of the bottom, eating out of uh, the same food as pigs. And when this gentleman finds his way back to his father's house, you know, his father welcomes him with open arms and kills the fattest calf and gives him the, the, the robe off his back and puts his ring on his finger. And a lot of times when that story is told, people focus so much on that gentleman that went out into the wilderness and found his way back. But what they ignore in that story is the gentleman's brother, who was also at the house, who goes to the father after he returns and says, you know, how dare you? Accept this guy back into our household. He spent half your bread. Like, you know, like he stank. He was with the pigs. And you're going to kill the fattest calf and throw a party for this man? And the father talks about, you know, for any of my flock, you know, and I welcome back, I'll do the same. Too many of us, like in this day and time, are that brother. You know, when people make mistakes, we're so ready to you know, throw them back out into the world. But at least as a Christian, man, understanding that everybody doesn't operate from the same ideology, that's their choice. But from the value system that I operate from, you know, we all have the responsibility to choose love first, even when people make mistakes. You made a mistake, you know, as long as you learn from it and continue to move forward. You know, you always got a friend in me. Well, thank you, Darius. It means a lot to me. And certainly uh, I would love to see a sense of humanity and forgiveness and grace and, and tolerance when people screw up. Uh, because right now I think a lot of people screw up and then, you know, bad things happen. And sometimes it's deserved, sometimes it's not. Uh, but I, I do think that there's a very, very widespread fear of screwing up <laughs> that, that, yeah. that, that is out there in the world. Um, and uh, I have to say, it doesn't feel good. Like I've let people down a number of times uh, in public life. Uh, it's never been a positive experience. Um, and each time I'm like, okay, like, you know, hopefully that's the last time. But then on, on some level, you kind of know that there is never going to be a last time unless you stop, unless you stop uh, being a human being in some ways or you stop doing things. You know, in the political universe, I think a lot of times you get surrounded by a team and folks and people that uh, eliminate the uh, possibility of certain kinds of mistakes. But you also lose something else, too. You know, you lose like a degree of uh, yourself. Yeah, or, you know, you, you become less of a uh, person and more of like an institution or an automaton. Uh, I, I agree with you, man. I think at the end of the day, to, to make mistakes is to be human. And very sad is the day that we create a world where people feel like they can't make mistakes. Um, yesterday is a perfect example. You know, I overbooked myself. The next thing I know, I'm missing meetings. And it was this period in the middle of the day where I was like feeling really bad and really down. And I got on my knees and I prayed and I was just like, God, like remove this from my spirit. Like, not because I didn't care that I didn't miss the meeting. You know, we'll reschedule and we'll move forward. But because I know that I operate with positive intent in everything that I do. And I think for a lot of people at the end of the day, they can't look themselves in the mirror and say that firmly that they're operating in a world positive intent, so it makes it very difficult, or it makes it much easier to point the fingers when somebody else makes a mistake. 
that's the end of the day. That's the only thing that matters is what is your uh, intent behind the actions that you make? This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN dot com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. When you say this, Darius, it reminds me of my younger self, and I'm a bit older than you. I've got some years on you, but I used to be so hard on myself yeah. uh, when I messed up. Uh you should apologize to your younger self, though. Or just, like, almost cripplingly angry at myself. Yeah. Uh, and I think that there was, like, a real lack of confidence that uh, I had when I was young and the skinny uh, Asian kid who got called, uh, you know, gook and chink and all sorts of other things in my mm-hmm. town, which was predominantly Italian-American. Uh, and so uh, I had uh, something that I was supposed to be good at, which was school, but being good at school doesn't make you feel particularly good about yourself when you're, you know, like the yeah. uh, the runty Asian kid. It's <laughs> like, oh, well, you know, my grades are good, especially in, in the uh, era I grew up in. And so uh, there was like this real desire to prove myself uh, as a man, boy and then man, um, that just spurred me forward throughout my adolescence and my 20s. And then when I would mess up, like I, I would uh, just be be so like I, I remember screaming at myself in private. I hopefully I wasn't doing it in front of people, but, but I, I was like uh, just and uh, as I got older, it was like the single biggest thing I needed to learn in order to um, one be able to operate successfully, but two uh, to be able to have like a decent, positive, healthy relationship um, was to kind of let some of that uh, that anger at myself go yeah like some kind of self-forgiveness and i think part of it is that i didn't have uh the sense of faith to fall back on it it seems like you were brought up in yeah i can resonate with that so much andrew to be honest like wow i can resonate with that so much i think we all hit those points right where it's like are you gonna hold on to the baggage and the trauma are you gonna forgive yourself and then being able to forgive yourself, ultimately forgive those around you. And I went through a similar uh, time in my life um, where I was learning to forgive myself. Uh, it was right around 2019, roughly a year or two before the pandemic. And I found myself at this period where I was on planes every single day. Um, the organization was growing at a... a tell family. people about your organization for a sec, too. Yeah, so Good Projects is... a is this amazing collective of passionate individuals in Washington, D.C. that are focused on eradicating poverty and the largest density of public housing in Washington, D.C. Incredible. Yeah. Um, Our goal is to support 500 families on their pathway to achieving their version of the American dream by 2030. Um, And we're well on our way to that goal with our first 45 families having enrolled in the program in the last year. Wow. 
Mm-hmm. So 2019, you're on planes all the time fundraising for this org? Uh, yeah, man. Yeah, man. By the grace of God, it's not very often, especially in a nonprofit space, that you have this idea. And within your first two years, you're able to take you know, an idea on a whiteboard in your college dorm room to an organization that will sustain in a revenue above $2 million a year. Wow. Uh, that That is incredible. Yeah, by the grace of God. By the grace of God. But, you know, to the point that you made, it's too often that, you know, God provides favor on somebody's life and then, you know, we use that for things that don't necessarily fill our cups. Um, and for me, that was, you know, you get all of this press coming in, all this notoriety, both for the impact and then the ability to scale an organization. So what inevitably happens for any founder of an organization, whether for-profit or non-profit? Speaking people, invites, I'm guessing? Speaking invites, man. People want to talk to you. Um, people want to fund your work. And every single day I found myself at one conference or the next conference at dinners, um, experience in this world that as a young black man coming out of Washington, D.C., I didn't even know existed. Um, so, Tell so, me about the weirdest shit that they had you at. Oh <laughs> you don't God. have to. I mean, I'll throw that out. I was once on a sailboat in Fiji. Like Wow. Yeah, I ain't never seen a yacht that big in my life. Just, That's nuts. Yeah, oh my gosh, private planes. The world of philanthropy is, 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 is not, it's changed a lot. It's changed a lot. It's changed a lot. So you were on these planes and then, so I'll, I'll relate my version of that, which was not quite as dramatic as yours on either side. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I started a nonprofit in 2011. Yeah. And while I was fundraising, I found myself going to a lot of conferences um, and making the case, trying to get people to get excited about Venture for America. Yeah. Uh, and the more I did of it, uh, the further away from the work I felt because 100%. they're like the young entrepreneurs you're trying to help or the startups uh, you're trying to foster. And then there are the conferences and the rich people and the corporations. You got to do the fundraising. That's the role of any executive director. If you're not, the expectation, if you're not doing those things, you're not doing your job effectively. Uh, you know, it sounds like you fell into that trap and I did too. And you find yourself just moving, 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 and you look up and weeks have gone by and you haven't touched the work that you've worked so hard to try <laughs> yeah, yeah, to build. Yeah, that, that could sneak up on you really good. You know, and for me, I didn't realize at the time, it's easy for me to talk about it in hindsight. I can directly point it to that thing, but at the time, there was this inadequacy and depression and anxiety that I was always feeling every single day, despite the fact that I'm looking there, around. There's something punishing about being like this ambassador for your idea or project. And even though it is you and you love this idea and Certainly. project, um, but you you feel a little bit like a performer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you do it for a while, it can really grind your spirit. Certainly. And take away from the ambition and the passion that you had when you got started. Yes. I because think, you didn't start it to you didn't be start on both pitching days. people. Some people did. Don't let me get wrong. Some people do. Some people do do that. Uh, I think that's what joins you and I together is that we didn't do it for that. You know, it's a blessing to be able to be in this studio and have these level of conversations. But I think we're both at points in our careers where this is not how I want to be spending my time. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. You know. <laughs> This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. 
That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Well, for, for me, I wound up running for president because I felt like my vision for improving people's lives wasn't going to be achieved through the nonprofit I was working at. Certainly. Uh, and the presidential campaign did uh, help bring the concept, of, of, and everyone knows it's not my idea, universal basic income, to a, a broader group. And that was what I was after. And it, it, it did make me feel better. Um, what was funny, Darius, that the presidential campaign was highly unlikely uh, when I started it, but I never felt better. Yeah. I was sitting in my mom's apartment here in Manhattan, not that far from where we're sitting, and planning my presidential campaign that made really no sense on the face of it um, with a few young, scrappy, idealistic people who believed in me, and we were just there. We were eating Chinese food or Indian food on the regular and like, yeah. you know, talking about things to go on the website and whatnot. Um, and in many ways, that was the high point of the campaign. Those early days. I mean, there were other high points too. And like, you know, there, there was a lot of joy and love. And um, I will confess to you, and I, people might sense this about me anyway, like I really miss the purity and joy of the presidential campaign um, mm-hmm. because there, there was like a, just like a very clear intent and motivation. Most people instinctively recognize that it was just a person because no one would send the Asian guy no one has ever heard of to go do something. So, so, so there, there was no, there was no like, you know, strange uh, agenda. It was just a guy being like, hey, we should start giving everyone money, and um, that purity certainly is a very different place than I am now, even though I still have the same vision and the same goals and the same agenda, um, but it doesn't feel the same in large part because now I'm a thing in the way I was not then. And then I was just a man wandering Iowa and New Hampshire uh, and people you know, decided to get behind me. And, and I, I try to stay, like stay human, stay just like the same guy but there, there are all of these things around me, and and uh, it, it's been, yeah, it's been a, a process for me too, honestly. I think the biggest thing to just continue to focus on is integrity, and not to take yourself too seriously. And I think you do a good job of that. Oh, thanks, uh, man. Yeah, you know, like it's been really fun hanging out with you the last day. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's called it ties back to. I think a lot of the issues that we're seeing in this country, at the end, it, like inevitably, is that we're all taking ourselves too seriously. The pandemic taught us anything. So you can take a work meeting in your underwear. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's one lesson. Yeah. I, I will say, so you and I had lunch earlier today, uh, and there was a mother dancing with her baby, and they just got up and started dancing with her. Never and, miss a good dance break. And she was very happy to have a dance partner, mm-hmm. and it was a bit of joy, a bit of levity. Never, never, make, never miss a good dance break, man. Like, life is short. Like, at the end of the day, you can walk around. This goes back to the growth mindset versus deficit mindset. Like, that is a perfect example. You're sitting in a, a food cafeteria in the middle of New York, and you see a mother that, for whatever reason, the song has caught uh, her hips, and she's just dancing with her little one-year-old baby by herself, just having the time of your life. And for most of us, when we in those moments, we're dancing by ourselves. So that was an opportunity that I saw, you know, it was a pretty cool song, like Freak, like, how can I make her feel just a little less alone in this moment? And there we were, you know, dancing. Like, how do you take a metaphor like that and apply it to life? Like, there's only two types of people in this world. At the end of the day, you have energy takers and energy givers. Like, those of us that are truly going out here trying to change the world and make it something special and better, those that come after us are energy givers. It's the people that get up, you know, make that woman feel a little less alone <laughs> dancing in the middle of the cafeteria as opposed to somebody that looks at her and says, oh, is she crazy because she dancing as opposed to, nah, she enjoying life. Energy giver. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the um, people that's helped your career along early on or good projects 
yeah. uh, was a guy named Frank Luntz. Yeah, great dude. Uh, I know Frank. Um, and Sorry to hear that. <laughs> Frank, I, I like dude. Frank too. Um, uh, and one of the things you and I bonded over was the, the sense that we need a different approach uh, beyond tribalism when it comes to politics, that For this sure. two warring factions thing is not a winning situation. It's not. It's not. It's not a winning situation just like the football team in Washington isn't. Like, you know, we got to jump <laughs> that's, ship. That's a rough thing. I mean, you know better than I do. We got to jump ship and jump ship now. <laughs> like, you know, the athlete in me understands sort of what we've created in the political system. And it's wow. two teams competing against each other. Wow. Um, and what we've seen, not just at Congress, but at sort of every level of government, is that when you have two teams competing with each other, at the end of the day, nothing is going to get done. At least nothing that genuinely supports the people that put those people in positions to serve. Like, this is not an effective system, which is one of the reasons why I'm so supportive of, you know, what you're doing with the forward party. I think we have a huge opportunity, even in this cycle in 2022, to really start to introduce what it looks like to have difference in the political system. I love it. Let's share this work and, and uh, share this vision with a ton more yeah. people in the next number of months. Man makes plans and God laughs. Inshallah. We'll see what happens, man. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Um, so when I met Frank, I had read some stuff about him and heard of him as this uh, dark Republican pollster type. No. And then I sit down with him and I think, wow, this guy is very well-intended, data-driven, reasonable, shared a lot of the same goals. Mm -hmm. And I will confess to you, Darius, I've had that experience now a number of times with people where going in, I was like, oh, like this person's, uh, you know, like a certain type, um, bad intentions, evil conservative quite often. Wow, you would think it was almost like somebody wanted you to think that, right? And then I talked to them and I'm like, I really like this person. This person's fairly positive and wants good things to happen for a lot of people. Maybe sometimes we disagree on, on some aspect, um, but nothing like whatever the heck. They portrayed like on television. Yes, and now that this has happened to me over and over again, now I, I try and take everything with a grain of salt where if I meet someone, I'm trying to come fresh. Certainly. I would say political pundits are like pro wrestlers. Right. Dude, I was an enormous wrestling fan growing up. It was one of like the, the ways that I, uh, you know, matured honestly. So I, I'm older than you by you know 20 years. So my entire wrestling frame of reference is at least a generation earlier. But I kept up with it through the entire Rock, Stone Cold, Cena, like uh, that, that entire you know, Ray Mysterio fan. Era. Yeah, Ray Mysterio is still freaking at it. Um, and I became friends with a bunch of wrestlers over the last number of years. Really? Yeah. Fun facts. Yeah, totally. <laughs> In, great guys. Mick Foley, incredible person. <laughs> Diamond Dallas Page, legitimately one of the most positive people you will ever meet. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, anyway, just, just letting you know that um, when I was running for president, half the time I was channeling professional wrestling promos. What was your alter ego's name during the campaign? Oh, well, it was Andrew Yang. I would just show up. My entrance music was Return of the It wasn't Andrew, Andrew Yang on the campaign. Like, it was, you know? <laughs> no, it was, there was one particular time. It was in South Carolina. Uh, it was the Clyburn uh, fish fry. And they set up such a high bar for the candidates. And so you can look this up online where all of us were wearing these ridiculous um, you know, like it was either blue or purple T-shirts. So like it's me, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Beto, like all of us just sort of standing in this bullpen. And you're told to go out to a group of South Carolinians and just talk to them for 60 seconds and then get off. Uh, so think about that task. So people would go out and they would say the, these things. I just channeled uh, the Rock, really. You know, I, like, I, I like went, went out there. And thank goodness. And the people of South Carolina who can hear this who were there, 
like who were there. Like, thank goodness I had some supporters in the crowd because I walked out and just sort of like did like a kind of Randy Orton-ish, like I'm here sort of wrestling pose. And then some people were like, yeah. Where can we find this video? Is that on YouTube? That This is somewhere on YouTube. You can look up Jim Clyburn, Fish Fry, and then, uh, you know, like if I had not been a pro wrestling fan, um, my campaign would have been entirely different and uh, probably been a dud. Uh, I understand. So you get the analogy then. It's like these political pundits, they're, they're going on TV as characters. Yeah. Completely. And, and this is one of the things that, you know, why Frank and I have clashed over the years, him is representative of an entire faction of media pundits that, you know, get paid to go out and play these characters that sell division. And that's not a uh, jab at Frank or any of the other guys, it's the business. It's, it's the, the business. business. You know, I've been there. And that exists on both sides of the aisle. We have an opportunity again in this generation to show that, not first create something different, but to show that there's an appetite for something different. That's why podcasts like this is so important. Um, the podcast that we have an opportunity to roll out with uh, the right to shower is so important. Is why the work um, Good Projects does is so important. You know, at the end of the day, like, and you would know the stats better than me. You wrote an amazing uh, op-ed in the Washington Post today. I think that you have a generation of young people that are coming up now that want something different. They want something different in television. They want something different politically. Um, they want different clothes, <laughs> you know, but. You well, know, let's give we, them something different, man. You would know a hundred times better than I would. I do what the young people want, uh, but let's sure, give it to them. Sure, Whatever they want, let's give it to them. <laughs> you're, you're a cool guy. Oh, thank you for saying so, man. So you and I want to fight poverty. And one of the things that we've clicked on is that Web3 technologies have the potential to be one of the most profound opportunities to combat poverty that maybe we have ever seen. Certainly, 100%, 100%, 100%. At the end of the day, we can sit here and celebrate covers of magazines or write tons of articles about the next uh, crypto billionaire and celebrate that person like it's the greatest thing since you know Jesus Christ. But at the end of the day, like we should be ashamed of ourselves. Like We're creating wealth in the most expansive time in history for people that more often than not, not to say this is the case all the time, but that more often than not we're already good. While we sit here and there's populations like the good zone in DC, in Southwest Washington, DC, where the average income is $14,000 a year. Wow. And we think that that's perfectly acceptable. Like you and I also agree on the point that poverty is a social construct that doesn't need to exist. Totally unnecessary. You know, financial technologies that have been created recently, like cryptocurrencies um, and the utilization of Web3 is the latest sort of iteration of how we can do it. It obviously allows us to do it at a much quicker and more efficient pace. But we could have eradicated poverty a long time ago. And this has been a relatively recent shift, though we've been we've been able to do it for years. But there was a period when there was genuine scarcity and not enough to go around. But we passed that point. We don't live in that time now. We don't live in that time now. The second that they started building them rockets that look like dildos and shooting them up to the moon, the time had come and gone where you could tell me that people need to be living on the street. Like, Agreed. It's completely unacceptable. Like completely it was actually pre-spaceship even like we, we could have done this stuff the thing that really lit a fire under me in my brain was during the financial crisis mm -hmm. 2008 2009 markets crashing etc cetera, etc cetera, they print four trillion dollars to shore up wall street mm -hmm. more or less and i don't remember voting for it no one remembers voting for it i don't remember anyone being like where are we gonna get the money etc cetera, etc cetera. But I got to tell you, Darius, I, I saw that shit and was like, we just did what? We just printed $4 trillion to essentially make the banks whole. Uh, and I took from that this incredible revelation that if we'd wanted to, we could have produced $4 trillion worth of wealth, goods, services for the American people at any point up to then. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if a push came to shove. Uh, and I genuinely think that we are still dealing with the 
anger in the aftermath of that financial crash. Hmm. Uh, because that financial crash, and now it seems like ancient history because it's you know, uh, 13, 14 years ago now. Uh, but it gave rise to the Tea Party. Uh, it, it gave rise to just a lot of populist anger where up, up until then it was not clear to me even. Uh, it was not clear to me how rigged and jacked up the game was until they pulled that printer lever for the $4 trillion, uh, in 08. After that, I was like, we can do anything. Mm -hmm. uh, and here we are. I mean, when I was running for president on this stuff, people were always like, oh, where are you going to get the money? Where are you going to get the money? And then we just did it again for uh, COVID relief, which, by the way, I was, you know, all for some version of it. The problem was that so little of that went to the people in the good zone or people around the country. Mm -hmm. I did the math. It's like 17% of it went to people and families. 83% of it went to banks, airlines, giant firms. And now they're finding out that a lot of the money that got plowed to these companies didn't go to payroll preservation or whatever the heck, it, you know, like, so which was, by the way, entirely predictable. Like if you'd wanted to, you could reverse that and been like, hey, guess what? We're going to send the money straight to the employees, send the money straight to the people. And then you can figure out like the, you know, the corporate balance sheet yourselves. I mean, that would have been a very dramatic way to do it, but I would have been for it. I think if you'd asked any American, hey, we're going to print $2 trillion. Uh, do you want 83% of it to go to the corporates or 83% of it to go to you, know, to, to you and your neighbors? Um, so I've been after this more or less since uh, 08 that we have entered an era of abundance if we want that for our people. Mm -hmm. uh, but it turns out that our government doesn't really respond to the people. Uh, and, it better and, start, man. It better start. And that, that's what we need to change. But you and I are going to work on activating uh, the value creation of Web3 technologies to help the people that you're serving uh, in the good zone uh, and other people uh, around the country as quickly as possible. Because you're right that right now uh, it's not addressing the imbalances and ills uh, the way that it could. And it's going to be good for everyone if we can uh, bring the opportunity to the need. Mm-hmm. 100%. If you think about just the foundation of cryptocurrencies, the foundation, this is pre-Silk Road days. It's got a bad rep during that time. You know, cryptocurrencies were created as a financial vehicle to provide access to capital to communities that otherwise wouldn't. More often than not, communities that would, didn't have yeah, access to Yeah, it was like the outsider banking. system. Yeah. And somewhere along the line, we let greed creep in the same way that we do again so many other things with this deficit mindset where when we step out here and we make these bold claims that, okay we're going to utilize the blockchain and web3 technologies to be able to provide more access to capital to communities people will look at us like oh my god that's so crazy to think about it's like no this is what it was made for in the first place we just put it on cash app and then it became a thing where we're like oh it's a commodity now because there's a dollar value associated with it right but again, back to my earlier point, as we sit here and celebrate how much wealth is being created in this moment, we should sit here and be ashamed of ourselves. How That's not helping people often, as much as it could or should. Yeah, more often that wealth is not touching those that truly need it. Yeah, it's true. Uh, I was talking to Bishop T.D. Jakes uh, the other day, mm -hmm. and and he was deeply concerned about the future of uh, black wealth and income. Yeah. Um, because he said, look. What wealth and income? Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, you're starting from, you know, a much lower uh, yeah. place and uh, base than you should. The average net worth of an African-American in this country is like zero dollars. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> what? <laughs> like. That's crazy, Andrew. Like, what are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing? Uh, and so Bishop Jakes asked me to project out whether that is going to get better or worse, given what you AI say? and the rest of it. And I, I actually saw the study that was released a couple of years ago, and it said it's uh, going to go down, not up. Mm -hmm. uh, and the metaphor I used with Bishop Jakes was that AI and uh, advancing technologies are like an economic uh, hurricane and 
in a storm, who gets hurt the most? The people in the lowest lying areas have the least ability to get to higher ground and seek shelter and the rest of it. And so who is that in terms of the economy? It's people of color who have lower levels of access and resources and opportunity to begin with. And so then if you send AI through that, uh, you know, it's going to get worse, not better. And I will say that Bishop Jake seemed completely unsurprised by anything I was saying. Like, yeah. He's a very savvy guy. So he, he kind of wanted me to say it, but he knew it. Yeah, no, it's true. But knowing it again and not doing something about yeah, it. Yeah, we got to do something about it. Makes us just as bad as the people that are conspiring for that to happen in the first place. And that's one of the things that unifies you and I, I like to think, mm -hmm. uh, is that we want all these good things to happen, but we don't want to wait. So we're just going to do them ourselves to the extent, gotcha. you know, that there's like I, I, you know, obviously try to get a hold of the government uh, because I think there are certain things we need the government for. But we also just need to make as many good things happen as possible in the here and now and not necessarily wait. Certainly. And I think what you and I both have also proven to the market, you know, anywhere is that you can do good for yourself and doing good for others. You know, I'm blessed to have been able to scale an amazing organization and good projects and even now as we venture into more for-profit things. Uh, but I've been able to create a wonderful life for myself and my family doing that. You know, will I be the next tech billionaire? You know, only Lord knows. But I do know along the way that we're going to create a lot of wealth for people that otherwise wouldn't have had access to the opportunity to do it. But not enough of us are operating through the world. So with that mindset, at the end of the day, we all rise together. Um, people don't want to think that way. I think it's a zero-sum game, and it's truly not. Um, and the worst-case scenario is that, you know, at the end of the day, if we keep going at this rate that we are now, we create poorer and poorer and poorer and poorer and more desperate people. You know, history does truly repeat itself, Andrew, and that's not me being a pessimist at all. You know, the foundation of the work that I do is following the successes of the past, the past and trying to create those in a way that benefits the families that I serve. But if you look at history, it shows that if you create a poor enough class, you know, people won't just fall out of the political system. They'll turn against you. <laughs> you know, we don't want that to be the case here in this country. Yeah, I'm, I'm gravely concerned about what's coming. Um, when you talk about this zero-sum game mentality, I came to politics as someone who'd been in startups. And so you're always looking for the value creation, the win-win-win. Uh, and the rest of it. And then you get into politics and people want it to become zero sum. Mm -hmm. I win, you lose, there, there's no growth. Mm -hmm. You are such an uplifting and inspiring figure, Darius. Mm -hmm. How can people help you? Man, I wouldn't be doing my job as an executive director if I didn't say uh, they could donate and support the project that we're working on. And that's goodprojects.org? Uh, yeah, they can go to goodprojects.org. Yeah, uh, or Darius Baxter personally, I know everyone watching and listening to this is going to want to lend a hand. You're yeah. changing lives uh, in a community that you know intimately and that needs it. And we're going to do some great work together, you and I. We're going to take mm -hmm. the potential of Web3 technologies and actually improve people's lives on the ground. And I hope that happens right in the good zone. Yeah, we're not hoping. No, you and I aren't really hopers. We're more doers. We're more doers. Like, And it's, uh, it's operating with this belief. Why would the vision be placed in our heart if it wasn't already ours? Like, we were, it's not serendipitous that we find ourselves together. It's not serendipitous we found ourselves together in this moment. It's not, you know, by chance we found ourselves together in this moment thinking about the same grand vision for communities. You know, going back to the, some of the earliest points that we made, when you operate from a place of integrity and love and you're doing things to try to help others, more often than not, you're going to meet other people to help you work towards that goal. More often than not, you're going to find yourself with an overabundance of resources to be able to complete what you need. You know, well, that, well, that that's uh, that's the dream for yeah. sure. But it has happened to me several times in, in my life. I wonder why. And, and uh, you could not even for a moment think that it was just you. Like there's there's absolutely no way to, to feel that having seen what I've seen and done what I've done where you, you set out and let's say you start an organization and in some ways you have no business starting that organization yeah. <laughs> and then people reach out a hand and help you in ways that you never would have expected or imagined and then it happens again and then people come work with you and the, the best feeling of all and I know you can relate to this is when you can bring someone into an environment where they get a better opportunity because uh, that, that's so much what people want uh, for themselves and it makes them 
stronger, more confident, more optimistic. I, that, that's what I love to do uh, more than anything else in the world. And that's what we have to do for as many people as possible. Certainly. Uh, I think both of us would also take it a step further and say people still have to be able to take that first step. Yeah. You know, the thing that joins us, and you joke about it, but you're very serious, is we're doers. Like Before we had resources, before we had platforms um, to talk about the work that we have the blessings to serve and do now, we were out there in the world creating a pathway for ourselves. Like you talk about your journey to becoming president, you know, you just said, okay, I'm going to do this. And you developed a strategy and you put you my journey like, running for president. I think you said becoming president. That would have been different. <laughs> yeah. You know, inshallah, if that's what you want, then I claim that for you. You know, who am I to tell you otherwise? But you well, put well, one well, foot in front you for, of the other. Thank you for saying that, Darius. I, you know, I, I will say, I don't, um, I ran for president not because I had some deep-seated desire to be president. I just wanted good things to happen. Mm -hmm. And I'm still at the same place. You know, like if, if I die uh, and I've never been president of the United States, I would be a-okay with that. Like mm -hmm. if I die and I didn't do my utmost to help as many people as I could, then like that, that wouldn't be the example I want to set for, you know, my boys, myself. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm not driven by that particular uh, specific ambition. Yeah. Um, I, I will say that this country and you, you, it's, you're a combination of the same things that I think that I am where you see how dark the future uh, can be and you see that there are a lot of things that we can do that could improve on it. So you feel like that this urgency. Um, so I'm going to do as much as possible. I don't know what that role looks like, but uh, thank you for saying what you said. Yeah. End of the day, all we have a responsibility to do is to show up and to be vessels. Both of us, I, I take, I relieve all pressure from you, and I hope that the listeners can learn something from this in this moment too. I relieve all pressure from you. To wake up every day feeling like that much weight is on your shoulders will first give you a hunch, but then second, like it's just too much to carry. You know, at the end of the day, you've been blessed with a vision. And I'll say this to you, Andrew, but I speak it to all of our listeners. Like you've been blessed with a vision, a divine one at that to go out there and to help people and to support people and to change their lives and provide a better future. One that you probably can't even imagine at this point because it's so big. Like, you don't have to worry, you don't have to stress. All you need to do is wake up every day, put them tennis shoes on, make sure you put them on the right feet, tie them up tight so you're on trip, and just keep moving forward. And moving forward with love and integrity and compassion and everything will work itself out, I promise you. You ain't never have to worry about a bill being paid, you don't have to worry about your health, your sanity. Everything will be taken care of. That is excellent, almost divine advice, my friend, and I will do my best to take it. Darius Baxter, goodprojects.org. Let's do some good together, my friend. So we're going to do some good together, I promise. Yes, we are. Yeah, I promise.